Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. This episode is brought to you by the I Choose the Ladder Career Affirmation Cards. The Career Affirmation Card Deck is a tool designed to help you remember that you are a boss, capable of achieving and doing whatever you put your mind to. And whether you're just starting out in your career or you're a seasoned professional, we all know that imposter syndrome is very real and can trick us into accepting less than we know we deserve. These affirmation cards are a must-have for anyone looking to build their confidence and take their career to the next level. These cards are filled with positive affirmations that will keep you motivated and focused on your goals no matter what challenges you face in your career. They're a great reminder of your aspirations and a great addition to any workspace or office. So don't wait any longer. Get your hands on these career affirmation cards today and start affirming your success. Just visit choosetheladder.com to buy your deck now. Again, that's choosetheladder.com to get your career affirmation cards today. In today's episode, you meet Brenda Battle. Brenda serves as Senior Vice President for Community Health Transformation and Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer, where she oversees efforts to design University of Chicago Medicine's Community Health Management Strategy, develop and implement coordinated, innovative healthcare solutions to address healthcare disparities and foster innovation in UCM's care delivery system by crafting care models that promote diversity, inclusion, and equity. Brenda leads efforts to integrate the resources and strategies of the University of Chicago Medicine with the assets and resources of the community to meet the healthcare needs of populations served by the UCM system. Prior to joining the UCM, Brenda was a director of the inaugural Center for Diversity and Cultural Competence for Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, where she oversaw programs to eliminate health disparities, promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. Brenda also has over 38 years of healthcare experience, serving as executive vice president, government and community affairs for medical transportation management, incorporated, and leading operations in commercial and Medicaid managed care. Brenda has served has several publications and has served as national speaker on reducing healthcare disparities. When you listen to this podcast episode, it becomes very clear that when they um, coined the term black girl, black woman magic, they were talking about Brenda Battle and the amount of thought and strategy that she puts into being a leader um, who is doing equity work is just, in my mind, mind blowing. Um, And so, Make sure you grab your I Choose a Ladder notebook, your favorite pen, and get ready to get to work. Brenda, thank you so much for being um, on the podcast. I know that things are incredibly busy for you now work-wise, so thank you for making the time. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so my first question, I, I always love to ask this to people whose um, titles that I see and I get in, immediately intimidated, um, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. So when you, when someone sees your title, like what do you do for a living? Um, what does it encompass? Yeah, so the title is Senior Vice President for Healthcare Transformation and Chief Equity Officer. What it means is I look for big, complex problems. And I work with many people to identify them, the community stakeholders, other community healthcare partners, health departments. And then we work to develop solutions for those complex problems. My work is mostly looking at complex problems that result in health inequities, health disparities, 
and looking at how do you look at both upstream and downstream effects of health inequities, and then build solutions for those issues, leveraging the assets of all of these stakeholders. Mm. Clearly the assets of the University of Chicago and University of Chicago Medicine, and the assets of all of those available resources in the communities that can help address those issues, and those of other respective stakeholder groups that can be brought together in a collaborative to collectively address them. So that's what that means. So did you always know that you wanted to do this work? Like, how does how does one become a transformation officer within a field like this? I think one of the things that I hope for the podcast is that we open people's minds up to the different career paths and avenues and opportunities that are available for them. But so did you know, maybe like coming out of college that this is the work that you wanted to be doing? I had no idea. Um, I've had a career that just stacked over years and each, each kind of um, job or, you know, uh, career area that I worked in just built on each other. So I started my career. I went to school to be a registered nurse and I graduated in the eighties and became a registered nurse and worked in the pediatric environment, worked in a couple different states and then just moved into other areas of healthcare. I worked in post-acute care, care for people who leave the healthcare institutions and need to be cared for in other institutions, leave hospitals and have to be cared for in other institutions. And then managed care, which is really insurance companies that help persons to get uh, care coordination and, and, and people to manage their care so that they can have better health outcomes. I did that and I was a healthcare lobbyist for a number of years. And so I just really, my career stacked I did work um, at another academic medical center in St. Louis that really focused on, began my work around focusing on health disparities and how do you really address the root causes of health disparities. So this kind of stacking of a career is what led to what I'm doing now. Had no idea, had no idea that you can do work like this when I got out of college. Um, but you know, as my career moved, I, you know, these opportunities were created and jobs like this transformation are created based upon what the needs are. Mm. And so the title that went along to addressing this came out of a, a clear and evident need to transform healthcare for persons who had been marginalized for many years. And so, no, sometimes you don't see this as you move along your career you stumble upon it and you you build your career and here's where you end up. And, and for me, it's the most exciting place to be in my career right now because it really, you know, I really pull from all of the experiences I've had up until this point. Why healthcare, right? You could have, you could have been a consultant. You could have done a ton of other things. Like why go in industry? So I decided healthcare though, when I was in the first grade, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> Um, yeah, so my oldest sister was a nurse and my school nurse, who I loved back in those days, they had school nurses. I just loved and admired. Um, it was those two individuals mm -hmm. that made me want to be a nurse. Now, in the first grade, I didn't know what nurses did. I didn't know what my sister did. I knew back then she wore a white uniform and her little white cap and her white hose and white shoes. And I thought they're angels. I want to do that. And I put in my head in the first grade that I wanted to be a nurse, whatever that meant. 
Mm. And that's what I pursued, pursued, pursued. But then when I got in high school, I thought, well, but I want to do business too. You know, how do you do both of those, combine those? Um, But because I decided to pursue nursing, I pursued nursing. And I graduated um, from from my nursing, got my bachelor's degree in nursing, graduated and practiced nursing for a while, but then started recognizing that there are other aspects of healthcare that really focused on the business of healthcare. And I was interested in doing that. And then I went back and got an MBA. So I combined those things, but that's kind of how I, I decided. And everybody doesn't decide that early. I did. And you mentioned two people that who you looked up to in the process. One of the things that comes up so much when we talk about career progression, things stacking up is like guidance, right? So having road models, having mentors, having sponsors. And so in your stacking of a career, has that played a role in, you know, shaping what your career ultimately looks like now? Yeah. So I, you know, to be honest with you, it's hard for um, us, it's black persons to recognize that, first of all, to even get a mentor, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had a lot of guidance. I had a lot of role models because I came from a big family of folks who became professional. And so they became role models for me. But in terms of a, a and, and they mentor you too in that way, but I didn't get my first mentor until I was probably around mid-career. Mm. And um, and it was a white male that mm. took interest in me and um, just, I don't know that he formally named himself my mentor, but I, I, I began the relationship that I had with him, I was able to work with him enough. He just recognized, you know, something about the work that I was doing and gave me that special time and taught me mm. some of the things that we don't learn, you know, taught me how to negotiate actually. He took the time to tell me, here's what you need to do when you negotiate. I mean, those are those secrets that you don't get, that you don't, you know, you don't learn in in your studies. And so he kind of took me on. And that's when I recognized the value of a mentor. Now I've had since then other folks that I view as, you know, really incredible role models in, in, in the work. I've had people who for specific aspects of my career that I could reach out to and get some guidance from. And I've had at least one sponsor, a career sponsor. And I think that's how I ended up in Chicago. The, um, uh, the, the past president of UChicago Medicine and Dean, I work with them at another academic medical center in um, the St. Louis market. And they're the ones that asked me to come to UChicago Medicine to do the work. I mean, that's a, it's not formal sponsor, but they're the ones that I worked with closely in that market and, and thought, here's an opportunity to bring and evolve her work in this bigger market. And so they were able to do that. But I, you know, for a long time, until I was in my mid thirties, I didn't even understand that there was the need for a mentor or the value of that. So that's, that's the unfortunate thing. And I've tried to be mentor mentors to young and rising African-Americans so that they can realize that, look, this is something that can really help your career. So now though, as you're someone who's sitting in the mentor seat, like what and you're incredibly busy, right? We've talked about the demands of the job, especially in the time that we're in in society. 
what makes you, what about a person makes you feel like, yes, I want to invest the time to mentor them, right? Because I'm sure that there are people listening now who would love to be mentored by someone like you. They just don't necessarily know like what the criteria for that is. And so when you're thinking about your very limited time and what you have to offer a mentee, right? Like, how are you evaluating that? Yeah, that's a great question because when people ask me to mentor them, I ask them questions. Mm. What do you, what do you, what do you want to get out of a mentor mentee relationship? Mm-hmm. You know, what are you aspiring for? Do you have something that you're particularly interested in, in learning? Mm-hmm. And they might not have all those answers at that very moment, but I want the relationship that I have with my mentees to be meaningful and impactful and helpful to them. You know, bring your agenda to this discussion. I'm not, I don't want to be in, you know, regular planned meetings with you. And then I don't want to just sit and talk about, you know, you know, whatever, just Mm -hmm. meaningless discussions that are not going to enable your career. And it doesn't mean that as a relationship forms that we don't get deeper into a personal relationship. I have two mentees right now, one that I've been mentoring for about eight years and one over the last two or three years. These are phenomenal women that I've seen elevate in their career that have been been using the advice that I've been giving them that brought scenarios into the relationship that we just work through. And, and, and it's, that's the kind of mentor mentee relationship I want to have, but you've got to have a You've got to have something that you're looking to gain from the relationship. And I think that's my main criteria. And you've got to be willing to put in the work around being a mentee as I'm going to take the time out of my busy busy schedule to put in the work with you as my mentor. So as your as your mentor. And so that's what's important to me. You don't have to have it all figured out, but you've got to have something in mind for that relationship. To show that you've at least put some thought into like you're invested in your own success, right? And someone, I always say like your mentor can only help you if you're already in motion, right? Like they they add, you know, speed to your already movement, but if you're not already moving, it makes it really hard to help. But speaking of that, right, are there professional mistakes that you see us like black folks, black women making that may be holding us back that we may not be aware of? Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting. I had a conversation with someone a few weeks ago, not too long ago, and she, uh, she, 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 she had it, got a position and people around her were beginning, getting promoted and getting a raise. And she wanted to plunge into the conversation with her manager because she felt like I deserve this raise because everybody else around me is getting a raise. And I had to say to her, do you really think you should get a raise because everybody else is getting a raise or is there another reason you should get a raise? I mean, do you have, I mean, is there something that you've done? What do you do? And I had to back that down off of that conversation and make her think more objectively. Is it, if this is something that you believe you deserve, then you need to know concretely why that is. And it can't be because everybody else is doing it or everybody else got it. You've Mm -hmm. got to think through. So I think a common mistake that we make is we get emotional, but we don't remain objective. 
And so my advice would be that even if you're right, you might, it might be, it might be wrong that all these folks around you are advancing or getting opportunities. But when you go to talk to your leader or whomever about an opportunity that you feel like you should get, you need to have, you need to be very clear and concrete on why that should be the case. And it can't just be because your emotions tell you you should. Now she was successful in gaining it, gaining what she wanted after the conversation, but she went in in a very different approach. Mm -hmm. It's like, make sure your battles that you're fighting are the right battles and that you have like objectively laid out what it is that what your value, what, what the value you bring and why, and don't let it be emotional. I think a common mistake is because we've experienced so much unfairness, we've experienced so much marginalization as Black people in these jobs, we let our emotions drive our negotiation and we can't let our emotions drive our negotiation. Mm -hmm. We have to have facts and concrete evidence that drives our negotiation. And that's a pain in the rear, I will tell you right now, to always have to come that way because everybody doesn't have to come that way. But unfortunately, we do. Let's control our emotions and choose and, when we use them. And here's what I want you all to hear, because I know you could listen to Brenda and say, well, are you saying that we're not allowed to have emotions as Black people? That is not That's what, not what I'm said. saying. What we're saying is that your feelings are valid, right? Yeah. But feelings are not what moves the needle professionally. It is the facts, right? And exactly. so being able to still have an outlet for your emotions and your feelings and know where the appropriate place for that is, Yes. And then also being objective enough to know that there are certain data points that you're going to have to have, be it right, wrong, or indifferent, if you are trying to move the needle for yourself professionally. So she's not saying you're Well, trust me, I have emotions. Anybody who knows me knows I have emotions. Everybody, People who know me know I get mad about stuff. But when I go into that conversation to advocate for myself and defend why I have facts, I have truth. I have evidence, I have the right type of comparisons, and that's what I bring into that conversation. Mm -hmm. And doesn't mean I don't go in with passion, but I don't go, I don't, I don't let my emotions, I don't think through the 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 reasons that I want this outcome just out of emotion. No. I'm not saying don't have your emotion. Please do not interpret what I'm saying because we're going to have an emotion, trust me. People need to know I stay a little mad most of the time because, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm mad about times I was passed over. I'm mad about being marginalized. I'm mad about being compared to somebody that I shouldn't have been compared to, mm. but I'm cool and calm and collected enough and smart enough to bring the evidence for why mm. I should be where I believe I should be. And I don't let that be driven out of just my head. Mm -hmm. It comes out of the facts. So let's talk about that though. Cause you know, folks are quick to stereotype, right? You have one outburst in quotes at work and somebody's like, oh, she's an angry black woman. Oh, she's too emotional. Oh, she's this. Like, do you factor in the stereotypes or are they considerations when you, as you decide how to navigate professionally? Yeah, I do. So, you know, as black people, we have we 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 have it we have it really rough because if we do express emotion, emotions, people will stereotype us and label us as angry black women or angry black people. Well, I so I do stay a little angry 
sometimes. I will tell you that. I still a little angry. And what I do with that is I use it appropriately. I don't use it all the time. I can control that in those conversations, but sometimes you have to use it. Um, and you have to even use that ap- appropriately. I I think we we want to, we strive to want to bring our selves, our authentic selves into the workplace. And we should be able to do that. We can't always help people to understand that the, the experiences that we've had as Black people in the workplace and in the world influence how we respond sometimes and react when we experience those same things in the workplace. And so sometimes we have to help people understand that and some will and some won't. And we just, we're always calculating as black people. We're calculating when we, we show up angry. We're calculating when and how we be, we become objective. We're calculating. And so this is where it, it is important to have someone to help give you guidance. Mm-hmm. It is important to have someone to, to, to be a sponsor. It is important then to have someone that you can just talk to. It might not be a formal mentee or mentor relationship or sponsorship relationship to help you talk through how to navigate some of those things. Mm-hmm. That's important to do because look, we've had some rough experiences in the workplace and we're mad about it, but we can't show up mad all the time. And we don't show up mad all the time when we're expressing this to people. And so it's complicated. That's all I can yeah. say. It's, not, it's a very complicated um, navigation. But what I had decided years ago is that other people's impression of who I am, that's your problem. Because that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. I perform at the highest level. I produce, and um, you know, I have I, I, I have incredible outcomes. And so, if I'm mad sometimes because of the, some of the things that you did, that doesn't sum me up. And somewhere we've got to decide ourselves how much we're going to let other folks stereotypes of us drive who we are and how we show up in the workplace. Because I think the other end of that spectrum is like people who don't respond at all. And then the, the feedback is like, she's not engaged or she's exactly. not, really or she, so it's like always calculating, like you said, which can be exhausting because people want to be calculating outcomes for their jobs, like the things exactly. that they're actually being measured on, but it's all of the other things that we have, all the other filters through which we have to process before we even get to our jobs. And so people are like, well, dang, if I express emotion, I'm angry, I'm to this, I'm to that. If I just do my job, now all of a sudden I'm not engaged, I'm not a team player, I'm not all those things. So like, where is the happy medium? And so I think it is true, right? Like, to the extent that you can control things, control them. But if not, like exactly. people are going to believe what they want to believe. Exactly. And so just show up and do your best. Is what show I, up and do your I best, mean. you know, and you got to decide that that's what you're going to do. So as a leader though, Brenda, how do you think through creating maybe a space or a culture where people are given the benefit of the doubt, right? Where colleagues can see their other colleagues express emotion, express anger that is not unprofessional because cussing people on the workplace is unprofessional, right? It doesn't matter who you are. But how do you think about as a leader, maybe creating 
a culture where that grace is extended? Well, in my role, I get to do that because I'm the chief equity officer too for uh, UChicago Medicine as the chief equity officer. I get to create those spaces where people can actually help others to understand the underneath all of that, why is this the case? So, you know, in our workplace, we have um, employee resource resource groups who are able to create this dynamic where uh, individuals get to express um, um, just 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 the the ex- historical experiences of being black or people of color within the workplace. And we have this one um, uh, employee resource group named Notice. Notice doesn't it's N O T I C E. It doesn't stand for anything. It's just Notice Me. These are black women at U Chicago Medicine who aspire to have opportunities like everybody else. And we have created through that ERG um, learning opportunities for our um, white counterparts to just understand the experiences of these women, these individuals, not just from their own perspective, but also bringing experts in to help them. We've had created and required for sponsors for this group, reading materials and, and things that they where people can actually understand. We have a number of different sessions that we created. So fortunately, I get to create those sessions because of the work that I do and the work that I've done for many years. I get to do that. But I will, to your point, you've got to create the opportunity for people to understand mm-hmm. why, why we as black women and black men feel that the experience in the workforce has been marginalizing for us. Mm-hmm. And we want people to recognize us as productive contributors to the workforce, mm-hmm. period. Period. But sometimes you got to get through all that other stuff and they need to understand that so that I don't want you to see me when I'm angry as the person who is just angry and not contributing. Mm-hmm. So, but you got to understand some things about why I feel this way. And so mm-hmm. these opportunities need to be created for people to understand that because they can't, they have no sense of why. We as Black people feel this way in the workplace, unless they are told why Mm. and given an opportunity to gain some understanding about that. Mm. And I know that, well, at least from my very limited network, you're one of few Black women that I know who sit this high um, in an org structure, right, doing this work. And something that comes up a lot for us is imposter syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. So do you, or have you ever dealt with imposter syndrome knowing that oftentimes you are the only in one of your intersections, you might be the only woman, the only black woman, the only whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. Have you ever dealt with imposter syndrome? And if you have, what have you done to try to manage it? Yeah, I've tried not to view myself in that place. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been fortunate over the last 20 years of my career, as I indicated, to be in a role to make sure that I'm not the only one because I'm, 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 I have been the only one. I've been the only one in the environment that I am. And I've had to say 
to my leaders that I'm tired of being the only one. I don't want to be the only one. So this work that we're saying we're doing around diversity, we're going to have to do this. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm super fortunate because I'm so not the only one. I mean, I have six or seven other African-American colleagues at VP and above positions in the organization that, that I think are awesome. I've tried not to ever see myself as an imposter in this environment because I've tried to always be working toward getting, making sure that there are others like me. And when there weren't, making sure people understand that it is it is really not only unfortunate, but, but it is unproductive to the organization to have a, particularly where I've worked in healthcare for so many years, to be underrepresented by people who represent the communities that we served. So right. I've used my voice as an advocate in the, these roles, in those rooms, to constantly inform my colleagues mm-hmm. of how um, of, the, of the reality is that we can't allow this to be because at those tables, the decisions that are made that impact the lives of other folks cannot be made by a group of people who have no concept about what other folks experience. You can't make those decisions. And I will teach you some of the things that you don't know, but I don't represent every aspect of the lives of the people who look like me. So we've got to have broader representation for that. So I have really tried, I I cannot say in my career, I've ever felt like an imposter at those tables Mm -hmm. because I've been honest. I've been, you know, an advocate as for as long as I can remember. I have, I have, I, I, you know, and this is where I do get frustrated and upset. And sometimes people do see my emotion because I do express my emotion about that because I, I think that that is unjust to be in an organization that is providing care and services for a population of persons of color and we don't represent them where we make the most key decisions about their lives. And Mm. I've never sat down on that Mm. ever. So I, I, I don't, I cannot say I've ever felt like an imposter at the table because I was always fighting it, advocating. Mm. Yeah. So for a lot of us, right, we look at Black folks particularly or specifically who have a seat at the table and mm-hmm. we expect a lot of you all, right? We're like, you should mm-hmm. be advocating for us. You should be pushing for us. And mm-hmm. the conversation tends to be one way of like, mm-hmm. what is the responsibility that the women, the Black women at the seat at, who have a seat at the table have to the Black folks, to the Black community? I want to flip that a little bit. What mm-hmm. responsibility do you think Black people have to the people with seats at the table, if any? Mm, mm, that's a great question. Cause you know, you know, um, on the flip side of that, I do think we have responsibility if we're at the table that we're not at the table just there for ourselves. So I do believe that I'm one that, and I've been frustrated by other black people who've been at the table who haven't leveraged their, mm. you know, ability to do that. But that's a great question. So uh, For people who are not at the table yet, I think they have to use their voice too. And I do understand when people don't feel that they are confident enough to use their voice. I had a conversation with someone who came into an organization I was with and said, look, I can't drive this because, you know, this other group of stakeholders, they have in their mind what they want. And I said, this was a, this was a personal color. I said, then then what do the policies say needs to be done? 
Because if you cannot, if, if you're afraid to advocate for this because I'm new and the other folks, you know, they already have in they, their mind what they want. What does the policy say? Then you you lean on what the policies say, and then it'll take you out of it. The policies say we're doing this, and these folks are wanting to defy it. So you've got to use your, if you're not there, people like me who are advocating at the level of the C-suite need people that are not at that level yet, that advocating at the level that they are. And if they don't feel empowered enough to just, you know, push some of these issues, then, then rely on what the policies and the systems say and do that. Or like this group, this notice group, form a group of, of, of like-minded people and create like an opportunity for people who are, feel less empowered to be a part of a group that mm -hmm. is empowered. Um, or bring forth scenarios that you see happening to the group that is does feel empowered to do, but you gotta, you can't be passive. You can't be passive. You have to operate within the sphere that you feel comfortable and sometimes and you have to stretch, but you can't just sit back and let stuff happen and not react to it. You can't do that. I think, I wish people who were afraid would do it anyway, even if they were afraid. <laughs> I wish they would. I wish they would, if they don't know what to do, then ask folks what to do and do what you can. I That's what we need. We can't do it alone. Mm -hmm. We need the folks that we're advocating for to come up behind us to do within the sphere that they can, what it is that they can do. Mm -hmm. And not just rely on folks like me to do it all. Mm -hmm. um, would you consider yourself an ambitious person? Yes. Okay. And you have a huge job, right? And we just, we talked about prior to starting that you recently are a newlywed and all those things. Mm -hmm. How do you, wh what do you do to make sure that Brenda the human doesn't get swallowed up or made invisible in all of the bigness that you have, the big job, the ambition, the family and all those things. Like, how do you make sure that you don't get lost? Yeah. So I am a very spiritual person. Mm -hmm. um, and that's my worldview. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, that's who I am first mm -hmm. and foremost. And my, my fundam fundamental, um, uh, uh, life, the guidance for my life is driven out of my spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And so that's first, everything else has to operate within that framework. Mm -hmm. My work has to operate within that. And that's who I am because that's who I've chosen to be. And that's what I love. That's mm -hmm. a part of who I am that I absolutely love my, 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 my spiritual, the spiritual aspect of my life, because that's what's helped me to really bring who I am forth. And mm -hmm. so that makes, that helps me to, you know, want to make sure that the community that I serve is getting, you know, what they need and, and that justice is brought to the community. It makes me it's what drives me to want to make sure that people get fair wages and fair opportunities in the workplace. It makes me want to make sure that my relationship with my husband, you know, is a good relationship and that my family is. And so that's what I bring to work with me. Mm -hmm. 
And so work and all this other stuff has to operate within that framework. And so that's who I am authentically. And that's how I make sure that who I am is how I show up. Yeah. Am I a professional? Yes, I am. And I'm a professional because that's what I, you know, that's what I believe. That's who I want to be. That's how I see myself Mm -hmm. as a professional, but that doesn't make me not human. Mm -hmm. I'm still very human. I'm a spiritual human being. And that's what I bring first Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. all these environments. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, Okay. So we're going to go to the lightning round questions. Um, first thing that comes to mind, do not think too deeply into this. Um, okay. What's one piece of career advice that you wish you had gotten earlier in your career? Choose your battles. <laughs> I mean, really choose your battles. Um, and some of them weren't worth fighting. Mm-hmm. What career lesson took you the longest to learn, but has had a significant impact on your career? Um, that you can actually... Be who you are in the workplace. It took me mm. a long time to learn that. But mm. that's been, I, I think I saw the greatest trajectory and growth when I realized I could actually be who I am, who I, myself in the workplace. It took mm. a long time. What is one book that you could read over and over again? So I have two books that I really, really love. And I actually tell people to read it. Now I tell people, this might not be your worldview. Don't, don't bother if it's not, but it's a really good book because it's just basic wisdom. So one of them is called wisdom in the workplace. Mm. I love it. I mean, it's, I told you I'm a spiritual person. So these two books are driven out of that framework. The other one is Jesus CEO. Oh, and it's just basic principles. I mean, seriously, that come straight from the Bible that are just the basic principles and where it just blows my mind. That's what it is. I have Wait. given that book, Jesus CEO. I have given that book to so many people over the years, whether they are Christian or not, it isn't even about, it is just basic, amazing concepts. And I've read that, that book over and over and over. It's just an incredible book to have. It's little, it's easy to read. Yeah. Um, if Forbes was doing a cover story on your career, what would the headline be? Um, wow. It would be, geez, um, transforming, um, transformation to justice. Mm, I love that. Um, and then the last question is, we all know that decisions about your career are made when you are not in the room. So what do you hope people are saying about you when you are not in the room? I hope they say that I am reasonable, that I'm fair, that I care about people, that I'm passionate, and that I'm just. Mm. And with that, thank you so much, Brenda, for being with me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Really appreciate it. When I tell you all that I love me some Brenda Battle, I am not even kidding. She is... um, She's a phenomenal woman. I'm very, very, I feel very grateful um, to have her in my orbit. But you all know that I love to end each episode with the three gems that I got. Brenda made it really hard. Um, Am I right or am I right? Um, But I did, I have four, but I'm only going to share three. So the first one is around putting in the work as a mentee. The conversation around mentorship comes up so much in our community. And I think we've been conditioned or socialized to believe 
that the mentor pours into the mentee and it's kind of a one-way relationship and hopefully as you've listened to all of these conversations um, you are now starting to learn that in order for a relationship to be long-lasting and beneficial it has to be a two-way street and so thinking about how you have invested in yourself and what your mentor has to work with as they try to help you accelerate your career goals the second thing and y'all know i talk about this ad nauseum is letting your emotions get in the way of your objective thinking. Um, that's not to say that your emotions are not valid. That's not to say that your um, your emotions don't matter. What it does say is that you have to figure out the most effective way to channel your emotions that also get help to get what it is that you're trying to get and obtain. And that is uh, art and not necessarily a science, but it's very, very, very important. And then I think the last one um, that I love is bloom where you're planted. When Bre when Brenda was talking about, you know, what can people who don't currently have a seat at the table do? Um, it was about looking at the resources that you currently have, the power that you currently have, and figuring out ways that you can leverage that for the betterment of everyone. And so not waiting until you get a seat at the table to then start doing what you feel like is leadership work or meaningful work, but looking at where you are right now and blooming where you're planted. As always, if you'd like to keep the conversation going, you can connect with me on Instagram at I see you watching. You can also connect with the brand on Instagram at I choose the ladder and you can find me on LinkedIn as well. And until next time, thank you for listening.